of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Game of Thrones, The Rise of David. In this series, we look at how God removed Saul from the throne and took David, a simple shepherd boy, and made him the king of Israel. Again, we do want to uh, say Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Some of you may be surprised by this. Uh, if you've been around for a while, you will not. I, I don't preach the Hallmark calendar, so uh, though I do wish Happy Mother's Day, and I'm looking forward to talking to my mom uh, later on today, we're, we're not going to be looking at motherhood per se out of the Scripture. We're going to be continuing in our series uh, in 1 Samuel, and uh, the we're calling Game of Thrones. I should also indicate, just in case if you have not been around for a long time, uh, I, didn't, I didn't call this Game of Thrones because I'm a huge fan of the books or the TV show. In fact, I have never read one word of the books, nor have I watched one second of the TV show. So I am not in any way, shape, or form building off of that other than it was a good concept to fit in with exactly what we see going on in Samuel Kings and Chronicles. And so uh, there's a lot of fear. It's kind of funny. I was telling some friends the other night, I each week uh, I tweet out like five or six quotes out of the teaching series. And, and if I have space, I hashtag Game of Thrones. And so the TV show has been retweeting my tweets about David and Samuel and Jesus. <laughs> kind of funny. I'm sure they're really reading them and paying close attention to what I'm saying about Jesus but they are apparently tweeting them out there to the Game of Thrones crowd. So with that, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 20 today, uh, what I'm calling a faithful friend, the relationship between David and Jonathan. We're going to be looking, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm going to read verses 12 to 17 because it kind of encapsulates what we'll be talking about. 1 Samuel 20, verses 12 to 17, as always, they'll be up on the screens. I'll be using the New International Version. Hear now the word of your creator and your redeemer. Then Jonathan said to David, by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. In the uh, time of World War II, there was a French community known as Le Chambon sur Lignon, which is a uh, community in France that was primarily Huguenot. That is the people who were established as Protestants by, by the ministry of John Calvin and the, and the reformers in Geneva. And they had been part of this Protestant community by this point for 300 years or so. And of course, World War II came raging through France as the Nazis came in, and the entire town together set the whole region up as a haven for Jews to hide them from the Nazis. Almost every individual in the town was hiding a Jew in their house, and when the Nazis would come, they had created hiding places out in the surrounding 
farmland and woods to hide the Jews. And they were doing this specifically as part of their faith, that this is what God would call us to do. We know what it is like to be persecuted, and therefore we are going to protect the ones who are persecuted. And of course, and they were actually being led by their pastor in this. He was guiding them and saying, this is an implication of our faith. So it wasn't just being kind. They were doing this specifically as Christians to hide the Jews. And it's one thing to do that at first when you're getting away with it. However, eventually, the Nazis kind of realized what's going on, and a number of them were arrested and sent to concentration camps, and some were even killed for this work of resisting the Nazis and doing what was right in befriending the Jews and caring for and protecting them from the wrath of the Nazis. And as a result, they are one of only two towns, there's also a Dutch town, I believe it is, that were recognized, the term is Yad Vashem, which means the hand of the name, which is the hand of God, because they won't use the name of God. This is the hand of Yahweh, and they recognize the entire town as being that. It's the same uh, designation that was given to men like uh, Schindler, if you've seen Schindler's list, people who worked to rescue the Jews from the Nazis because they helped so many people and they did it at such great danger. Now, I bring this up because what they were doing finds a lot of parallels in the story of Jonathan and David. One might expect Jonathan to simply go along with his father's program. We saw last week that Saul has descended into madness in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 to the point that he's trying to kill David. He's trying to get other people to kill David. He's even trying to pull Jonathan in. And he's doing it all because he's saying, if my dynasty is going to be secure, if I am always going to be sitting on the throne and have a male after me to sit on the throne, David has to go. And of course, the first person who would be taking that throne over is none other than Jonathan. But as we're going to see today, Jonathan, like the people of Le Chambon, are is not worried about that. What he is worried about is what would God have him do. And that's a very different path than his father wants. So we're going to take a look at this today and see Jonathan as a faithful friend and see what it means in David's life in the continuing unfolding story here in the Game of Thrones. First, let's look at the depth of friendship that exists between Jonathan and David. The number one thing you want to say in the scripture regarding them is that they are deep, deep friends. We actually, the first time we see Jonathan and David together is in 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 and 3, which we've looked at before, but just to remind us, we're told there that Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as he loved himself. This is right after the victory over Goliath. And then in verse three we read, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And then part of our text today, 1 Samuel 20, 17, we read, Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So uh, we read three times this phrase, he loved him as he loved himself. It's one of the statements uh, you know, there, there's other statements that are made regarding this as well, how fond Jonathan was of David, how much they loved and cared for each other, but these are the strongest. Now, what's interesting is when you hear loving someone as he loves himself, what does that remind us of? The second greatest commandment, right? You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So, so in a sense, one could say, well, Jonathan's just doing the commandment, but the reality is 
how often is that commandment actually fulfilled? How often do we as human beings truly, really love someone as much as we love ourselves? And of course, the acid test comes in. It's one thing if you live in Le Chambon and you say, I love those Jews as much as I love myself until loving them means you might die in their place. Then do I really love them that much? Or does it wither in the face of persecution and suffering? Jonathan here, the second commandment's not just a word. He literally loved David as much as he loves himself. And this phrase is going to be borne out in the sacrifice that Jonathan will make for the good of David and the good of David's line. But it's not just that Jonathan loves David. David also loves Jonathan. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, verse 41, a few verses down from where we read, we read that David bowed before Jonathan three times. This is part of being in the covenant. And he's recognizing at this point, Jonathan is actually the senior in the covenant, not David. So he bows before him three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. And in verse 20, uh, 2 Samuel 1, verse 26, this is part of the poem that David sang on finding out that Saul and Jonathan had died. That'll be in the future, not to give a spoiler away, but uh, Jonathan's going to die. And we read here, he says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. And so David deeply loves Jonathan. Notice he even wept the most at their parting. David felt the sting of their relationship being parted. He grieves deeply when Jonathan dies. David doesn't say, because see, what one might think is, is you know, well, hey, it's good for me because if Saul's dead and now Jonathan's dead, everybody's going to look to me. This whole question of Saul's reign is going to be real. But that's not the way David views it. David views it, I have lost my deepest and closest friend. The one who had stood by me, I have lost him. David loves Jonathan like his own brother. And in fact, if you remember, David's brothers at this point in the story are not really close with David. They've castigated David. They've been the ones standing against it. It's Jonathan that has stood by David like a brother, not even his own physical brother. So these two are close together, and they're showing us that true friendship is a bond of deep affection. True friendship means loving another as I would love myself. Anything less than that is really just acquaintance. It's not what the Scripture's talking about by friendship. Now, want to unpack a little bit as we go through chapter 20 here, we see the nature of Jonathan and David's friendship, and it's really important for you and me because as we've been talking about this here in the Game of Thrones, and we're looking at David's life, I've been commenting that to be faithful to God, as David was, ends up with you being ostracized by others. It ends up with you having a struggle because faithfulness to God produces hostility from other people who are not wanting to be faithful to God. It is simply a fact we have to be ready for. Now, what that ushers in then is, how are you and I going to make it through that? Okay, and I've been stating I'm not a prophet, but I, I will go ahead and make a statement. There are much harder times coming for those who want to be faithful to Jesus in the near future here in our country. Okay, just get ready for that. And don't listen to silly people telling you peace, peace when there is no peace. It's not what's in store for us. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that is what is likely in our future. Barring God sending a massive 
revival and awakening, which I pray for. But barring that, there are probably dark times ahead. Well, what do we need? Well, what we need is we need true friends around us in the midst of that. It's not just us. We need friends to gather around us. So what's the nature of this friendship that sustained David through those dark times that we ought to be looking for ourselves? Number one, the the first thing in the nature is it was a friendship based on their common faith. A friendship based on their common faith. 1 Samuel 20, 16, notice in the middle of the section we read, Jonathan makes a covenant with the house of David, and he says, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. So notice the, their words and the, the thing that is there at the center of their friendship, he's talking about what Yahweh would do relative to David's enemies. There is this common faith they have going. Notice in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, Jonathan says to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Now, with these two verses, let me, let me uh, hasten to say very quickly, we can and we should be friends with those who do not share our faith. So don't walk out of here and say, I should only be friends with believers. That, that's not the point, okay? You're never gonna hear me say that. We are called to be true friends with unbelievers and not just so that they can be gospel targets either, okay? To exercise true friendship with anyone because we share humanity, okay? This is that deep doctrine I mentioned many times before. When you became a Christian, you did not cease to be human. You're still human. And therefore, anyone who is human and bears the image of God, we can and should be friends with. Uh, This is not a call to forsake those who don't share our faith. However, It is a statement that we also have to have close friends who do share our faith. Uh, Our faith should lie at the core of who we are, and because of that, we should find many of our deepest relationships with those who share that faith, because it's central to who I am. And therefore, many of my friendships are going to be found, many of my deepest friendships are going to be found among those who share that faith. And in fact, if we do not find ourselves building relationships with other believers, we need to ask ourselves why that's true. It's not because, well, I can't find any Christians who are like me. Uh, there, There are hundreds of millions of us on the planet, okay? There are plenty of believers who share my interest and other things I have in common. That is not why I'm not building gospel-centered, Christ-centered friendships. We should find ourselves building those, and there's enough believers to find deep friendships with some of them, unless there's a reason I'm simply not wanting to. And I bring this up because if we're going to make it through dark times, You need those. We're going to see Jonathan's friendship with David is going to encourage and strengthen David in God. And that requires those who share our common faith for us to walk together through this. So that's the first point. Second point is notice it's a covenant friendship. And this runs very counter to our culture. So I want to take a little bit of time talking about this. Notice in 1 Samuel 18.3, we're told Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. In 1 Samuel 20, verses 16 and 17, 
which is part of the text we just read. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. And verse 17, Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath, which is just another way of saying making a covenant, because a covenant is an oath, out of love for him. And then in 1 Samuel 23, 18, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. This is the first time David and Jonathan were told are together in 1 Samuel 18, 3. This is the longest section dealing with their friendship in 1 Samuel 20, and right in the heart of it is covenant. And 1 Samuel 23 is the last time David and Jonathan ever see each other alive. First time, central time, last time, what stands out is they made covenant with each other. The idea of a covenant or a binding oath is repeatedly stressed in this account. And in fact, if you remember in the text where Jonathan was saying, I want you to show me unfailing kindness like the kindness of the Lord. The word that's used there that the NIV has translated as kindness or unfailing kindness is chesed. That is God's covenant faithfulness and love. You remember when we looked at Psalm 23 just a few weeks ago? God's covenant faithfulness and love pursues us. It's that same word is being used here. It is a covenant faithfulness, a covenant love, a covenant loyalty. And Jonathan is saying, that's what I want you used to. Not only is the word covenant and oath used, the very thing they're covenanting about presupposes that they have a covenant faithfulness and loyalty with one another. This is a covenantal friendship because of political and dynastic issues, okay? And what I mean by that is Jonathan here, and we're going to come back and look at this, is basically saying, I know that what politics says, I know what di dynasty says is I'm supposed to be trying to kill you. I'm supposed to be siding with Saul against you. What I'm doing is I am making a binding oath. This is not just in passing I tell you, hey, I'm for you, David. I am willing to take an oath in the name of Yahweh that I will make sure you, David, sit on the throne one day. Okay? Because of that, they have to have a covenant oath. But, so, so we may not make covenant oaths. I don't go around all the time striking covenant oaths or being blood brothers or any of that. But what is true for us is all true friendships have to have a binding, lasting nature about them. They have to say, this isn't a throwaway relationship. It is binding and lasting. It can't be broken without great anguish and tears. It is a relationship that says, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but come what may, you can count, I'll be standing beside you. That's the nature of the relationship here. And if you think about that, that is not the way things are in our culture. You live, I live, in a disposable culture. We paid hundreds of dollars for these little things, and how long do we keep them? Until a newer, shinier one comes along, or until this one starts giving me trouble, and then what do I do with it? You get rid of it, right? You give it to your kids to play with or something, right? You just get rid of it, and you replace it. That is what we've been taught and trained to do with everything. And the same thing is true with relationships. We view them as disposable. But, uh, so that's why this idea that I'm driving at here of covenant is critical for our throwaway culture. We just dispose of old things. We get rid of them. Uh, for shiny new things. But true friendships cannot be treated that way. I cannot love and care for you like Jonathan loves and cares for David if I have no assurance you're going to be around tomorrow. 
if you're just here today and gone tomorrow, you, you cannot commit yourself to that kind of friendship. True friendships are built on covenant loyalty, and as a result of that covenant loyalty, there is room to grow, to deepen, and thrive over time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, speaking of the marriage relationship, says it's, it's not the love that sustains the marriage. It's the covenant bond of marriage that sustains the love. That's what gives it freedom to be able to grow and to deepen because you know that the person's going to be there tomorrow and the day after and the day after. Now, this goes directly against our culture. Our culture thinks the way that you find room and freedom and thriving is no strings attached. I don't want any strings attached. But what that is is that's cutting all the soil out around the roots that you're trying to grow real relationships. They cannot thrive and grow apart from binding ourselves to one another. And let me be honest, the reason we don't like binding ourselves to one another is you all are fickle and changing and so am I. And we fall short. And if I bind myself to you, what happens? You might, let me go ahead and tell you, it's not might, you will. You will fail me, and I will fail you. And that is no excuse for not creating binding relationships. And to do it, we do that, we remove the soil, and then we wonder why the plants of our relationships wither and die. They wither and die because we've removed the things that are necessary for them to survive in the first place, which is a willingness to bind ourselves to one another and say, come hell or high water, I will be beside you. I will stand there. You do not need to worry about me. I'm going to be faithful to you. I almost began the teaching today with referencing back to Band of Brothers. If you've ever seen that TV series, it's an amazing series on one company moving through World War II. And what sustained those guys was they came to know, I can trust in my friend. When the Battle of the Bulge hits and they're all being cut off by the Nazis, they're not worried that my buddy's going to abandon me. They, they've already learned no matter what happens, he will stand beside me and he has got my back. That's what's required for friendship to grow. And so it's not important that we sit down and we have a lawyer write out a contract and you and I sign a covenant agreement. It is important that we understand this friendship is binding. We are standing by one another. We're not going to just trade each other in for something newer and better and that seems more fun to us, which is the way our culture does it. Now think about it, all the things that go into our culture. It's not just even new and shiny are we a mobile culture or a stationary culture? We're mobile. I talked to somebody the other day, and they said it's like nobody is from Anne Arundel County. Everybody's here. Yes, my wife is. There's four of them. <laughs> We're a mobile culture. You just pick up and you move. And, and things get a little bit better with work or some, some other offer, and I just pick up and I move, Right? Work, it used to be you worked for a company, and how long would that company be loyal to you? To the end. And how long were you loyal to that company? To the end. You started a job out of high school or college, and you planned on being there basically to retirement. If you said that today, people would look at you like you obviously played under power lines too much. 
Because there, there's just no way. You don't, even, you don't even begin to think about that. I want to know that I can pick up and move. It used to be that you were in a church where your grandparents had worshipped and your parents worshipped and you were raising your children. And in fact, you walked through a graveyard on the way in where those people were now buried. Now, I've been a member of, I'm a member of four churches at the present. Is that not the truth? Is that the way we are? But see, you can't have David and Jonathan friendship if that's your philosophy of life. Can't happen. It requires us being willing to sacrifice. And that leads to the third point. The reason you have to have the, the sense of binding ourselves to one another is friendship requires sacrifice. Notice Jonathan's friendship. First off, here, here's the sum of sacrifice. Jonathan's friendship with David made Saul really happy, didn't it? Saul thought, this is a great idea. Of all the guys you should make covenant with, Jonathan, David's number one on the list. You think that's how Saul's going to respond? See, Saul is so angry. Notice the, the whole chapter in chapter 20 is David is left because Saul's thrown the spear at him three times. And so David's out and he realizes Saul's holding a feast, but I'm going there and he's plotting my death is what he's doing. And so he's telling Jonathan, I can't go back to the feast, but if I don't go to the feast, your dad's going to know I'm not coming and he's going to be looking for me. And Jonathan's telling him, David, I, I'm not sure my dad's really trying to kill you. John, I don't know what Jonathan's thinking at that point, but I don't think my dad's trying to kill you. But listen, I will find out. I'm going to probe my dad figure out what's going on, and I will come back here and I will let you know. And he's got a whole elaborate thing about a young guy's going to shoot some arrows so Jonathan doesn't seem to be just sneaking around, and it'll let Jonathan know what's going on. So in the midst of that, this is Jonathan probing Saul, and we read in verses 30 and 31 that because Jonathan's been speaking up in defense of David and saying, David's a good guy, Dad. And we read in verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now, I'm not going to give you a good English vernacular of that because then I would be known as the cussing preacher. Okay? But what he is saying is, you S-O-B. You're so stupid. What is wrong with you? Do you not understand? I am trying to secure your throne. And you are busy running off like some kind of a cheap harlot selling yourself to this guy. What is wrong with you, Jonathan? I, I mean, it is, it's crude language he's using in the Hebrew, okay? And you need to grasp that. And the source of that response is Jonathan's David uh, friendship with David. He's not angry that Jonathan didn't try hard in school, that Jonathan ran off the battlefield, none of that. It's your friends with this guy, and that friendship is producing anger. And he goes on and he says, don't I know that you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother who bore you? And see, this is not Mother's Day, is it? See, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. That's what you're going to do, Jonathan. You, you, you are stupid like your mother. Go out there, get him, and bring him back here, and I'm going to kill him. 
That's what Saul says. Now, Jonathan's response then is told to us in verses 32 to 34. Now, you have to remember, in a sense, what Saul is saying is true. David is what's keeping you from getting the throne. But notice Jonathan's response in verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. And Saul, in the spirit of contemporary political discourse, hurled his spear at him to kill him. I don't have a good answer, so I just hurl a spear at you, okay? If you don't think that's political discourse, log into Facebook this afternoon. Um, That's right, it's just target price. He knew that his, and then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David, so he got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. So notice, as now's the point. It's one thing to stand one day and say, I'm your friend. You can count on me. What happens when daddy's angry about that friendship? What happens when it's now going to cost you. But see, Jonathan doesn't wither under that. Jonathan stands firm and he holds fast to David. And in fact, he defends his friend to the very one tearing him down. And so Saul's response is, then I gotta kill you. I mean, which will really set up Saul's dynasty, right? This goes back to what jealousy and anger and wrath does. How is Saul securing his own dynasty by killing the heir? Answer is he's not. But there's no reason when you get this far into the Game of Thrones. When you are bound and determined you're going to have your kingdom in your way, you'll kill the very person you're supposedly trying to help out. Because all that really matters is I get my way. And Jonathan realizes this, he sees it, and he refuses to betray his friendship with David, and we're told he grieves deeply over Saul's evil conduct. Now, it doesn't tell us in the text, but do you think, A, this really helped Jonathan's relationship with dad? Or B, this was a festering, continuing problem? This is a terrible situation he's in. But to be faithful to Yahweh means he's going to get Saul's anger and wrath. And to be faithful friends with David, with whom he's made a covenant relationship, requires there's going to be anger from other people. They are not going to like it. So he remains faithful to the end. Now, secondly, Please understand, it's not just anger with Saul. Jonathan has a personal cost. This friendship with David costs Jonathan the throne. Make no bones about it. It cost him the throne. And Jonathan realizes this. If we flash forward to 1 Samuel 23, the last time they are together, we read this, starting at verse 17. Jonathan says to David, because David is down. David is in a cave. He is depressed. Okay, you can read some of his, oh God, where are you psalms that he wrote at this point in his life. And he's struggling, and Jonathan says this, don't be afraid, he said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. Back to what we saw last week, David, you're safe. God is sovereign. God is watching over you, David. God has made a covenant promise with you, David, and I'm here to encourage and strengthen you in that, David. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. You, 
Even my father Saul knows this. David was God's choice as the next king. And this is what Saul refused to accept. And that's why Saul's playing the game of thrones. That's why he's engaged in all this, because he does not want David on the throne. But notice, Jonathan has fully embraced it. Jonathan says, I see the same thing my father Saul sees. But when he sees it, it produces jealousy and wrath and anger and madness and hatred and attempted murder because Saul is playing the game of thrones. Because Saul is going to sit on the throne come hell or high water. But my response is totally different. I see you are Yahweh's choice to be the next king. And what that means is, though everything else would say, I'm to be the next king, I'm stepping down off the throne, you will be on the throne, I will do everything in my power to make sure you are on the throne, and I'll be the guy standing next to you. That's what I'm going to do. Now that is a faithful friend. Rather than playing the game of thrones, Jonathan bows before Yahweh and says, you're will be done. Your will being done is going to cost me. It's going to cost me everything, but it's more important that thy will be done than it is that my will be done. Now, as I put it that way, does that remind you of anybody else in the scripture who would put the needs of others ahead of themselves, who, who would be encouraged by others to say, you know, you could have all the kingdoms of the world if you just play the Game of Thrones, if you just bow down and worship me, all of this could be yours. But that one wrestles all the way through to the Garden of Gethsemane and says, not my will, but thine be done. When Jonathan does that, it means the end of the dynasty of Saul. It means David sits on the throne. It means that Saul's descendants will no longer rule, but David's will all the way until the Messiah comes. When Jesus does it, it means that there is salvation for you and me rather than damnation. And if he had chosen his own will, you are lost. So am I. And so Jonathan here is foreshadowing Christ who refuses to play this game of thrones. Jonathan's act secures temporal success for Israel. It's good for Israel that Jonathan does this temporally. But when Christ does it for you and me, Christ whom Jonathan is foreshadowing, it's not just good temporally, it is good eternally. And Jonathan is being very much like Christ in this text. So we see here that true friendship is a covenantal relationship that is willing to sacrifice personal gain for the good of the other, that they may flourish in God's call for them. We can find other examples in Scripture. It's Jonathan doing this with David. It is John the Baptist saying, he must increase, which means I have to decrease. That's, it's always that God's will is primary. And that's what true friendship is built around. Now, before we go to applying the word, one more thing, which is the result of their friendship. The result. And the result is that their friendship strengthened David and God. Because remember, in the overarching storyline of Scripture here, the reason this is so important, and the reason it's important that David hold on through all of this, because you've got to realize, would it be easier for David to say, I'm just tired of this? And we're going to see in the coming weeks, David is going to waver. There are good times and there are bad times for David. 
And we're going to see that Yahweh has to keep rescuing David because what's at stake is the coming of Messiah. And so it's important. Jonathan's not just doing something saying, hey, I think you'll be a better king. Jonathan sees the call of Yahweh. Jonathan sees Yahweh's purpose, and therefore he wants to do that. And so as a result, Jonathan and his friendship is strengthening David, which is critical for the coming of Messiah. In 1 Samuel 23, uh, verses 16 to 18, we see David at one of the darkest moments in his life. Because we're going to see it doesn't stop at chapter 20. In chapters 21 and moving forward, Saul is continuing to chase David. He's chasing him like a dog around the desert. He's trying to kill him. Other people are betraying David. David is stuck with a band of basically ruffians and, and guys that probably ought to be in jail is the way they're described in Scripture. That's what David's got around him, and he is a fugitive, and he is sitting in a cave, and he is despairing, and he is thinking, I would have been better off if Samuel had kept that stupid flask of oil to himself, or if he had picked one of my brothers or done something else. Why am I sitting here? None of this is worth it. This is a mess. And at that moment, Jonathan comes to David and he seeks David out and he finds him. And we read in 1 Samuel 23, 16, Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. And he says, David, you remember we made a covenant all the way back right after Goliath. You remember the day that you had to flee? We made a covenant, David. And I am here and I'm making a covenant with you again. Third time, David, it is strong. It will not be broken. And I want you to know God has promised you will sit on the throne and God will keep his word, David. Stay in there and I will be faithful. I am not going to go to my father's side. I am standing here firm, working for you. And one day I just hope to be standing at your side, David, but you are going to be sitting on the throne. That's what Jonathan does for David. It seems that everything had been lost. He's a forsaken fugitive. And right then, Jonathan finds David. David doesn't find Jonathan. Jonathan finds David. Jonathan goes out of his way, and he takes a risk. What do you think Saul's going to do if he finds out Jonathan is sneaking off and finding David, not to kill him, but to encourage him to keep on in what Saul views as rebellion? I mean, we've already seen, is Saul above throwing spears at Jonathan? I mean, he'll do whatever. He's using his daughters. He's trying to kill his son. Anything that helps David, Saul is going to be angry at. And Jonathan risks all of that, knowing ultimately he's getting rid of his own right to sit on the throne, and he goes and he finds David. Because Jonathan is a fulfillment of Proverbs on friendship. He is, I'm going to put up two Proverbs here. He is these things incarnate. Look at them. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves when? At all times. It is easy to be friend in good times when everything's going well. It's hard when things aren't going well. And a brother, we're told, is born for adversity. That's why you need brothers. Adversity is going to come, and that's why God gave you a brother. That's why he gave you a friend to be there. Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin. This is a person who's got lots of acquaintances, but no friends. And God says, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. True friendship shines brightest in the darkest moments of life. 
You know who your friends are when you're alone and you're in a cave and it seems like the world has forsaken you and somebody shows up and says, I'm still here. I'm still with you. And sometimes they even have to say, you're in a cave because you did something really dumb and you got yourself in a cave. But I'm still here because a friend is born for adversity. A brother is here for those adverse times. True friends are a reflection of Christ. I again want you to see this. Jonathan's being a reflection of Christ here. Did Jesus wait for us to pursue him? Did Jesus wait for us to come out of the cave and say, oh, Jesus, save me? No. See, here's a good, a bit of good theology for you. When your salvation worked like this, after all Jesus had done, you were running away from him as hard and fast as you possibly could. And when he corralled you and held you down, you looked up and said, Lord, I found you. That's how it happened. He pursued you because that's what friends do. Friends pursue. They don't wait for the other person to come to them. They pursue even when they are struggling. And so, just as a sideline before we even move on to applying the word, if you have a friend who may be struggling and they're not coming when the saints gather, what should we do? What do we do? Pick up the phone and call them. Because here's a secret. When you're in a cave, you don't want to call people. Nor do I. None of us do. We want to stay in our cave. But we need somebody at that very moment to keep knocking on the door and keep saying, I'm here. Where are you at, friend? What's going on? What's happening? We need friends for our darkest hours. And so a true friend is going to be there, and again, what they're going to do is they're going to point you to your source of strength in God. If I find you in a cave, I'm not the solution to your problem. Trust me. You don't need me. What I will be is somebody who will keep saying, what you need is Jesus. And I know it seems like he's far off, but he's not. And I know it seems like his promises are going to fail, but they're not. And I know it seems like everything has fallen apart, but the sun will come out tomorrow. You need to keep looking to God. That's what we need friends for. Now, let's talk about applying the word and we'll close. Two questions. Number one, do I have friends that remind me of Jonathan? Do I have friends that remind me of Jonathan? Now, the answer to that question cannot be, well, I understand David might have needed that and other people need it, but I don't. That's a categorical impossibility because you are created in the image of God, which means you were created relational. And secondly, when we who had fallen were redeemed, we were redeemed and set into the church, which is relational. And it was done that we might have relationship. So you are not created, nor are you redeemed for isolation. None of us are. Furthermore, let me go ahead and give you this bit of cheery promise you can put in your Jesus promise book. Days will come when you will need a Jonathan in your life. Take it to the bank. There will be dark days. That's not a question. The question is, when I wake up and I find myself in the cave, do I have a friend who will come pursue me? Do I have somebody who will find me? So, do I have a friend or a few friends? Now, listen, notice 
That proverb said, you know, a, a man of many companions may come to ruin. I'm not asking if you have hundreds of companions. I'm asking, do you have a few friends? You, you, you can't have hundreds of people like David and Jonathan. It's, we don't have that capacity. God does. God is that person to all of us in here because he has infinite capacity. You and I are very limited. So do I have a couple of people I can name and say, you know what, that person will come find me. They would be faithful to track me down. And that's the, the last part of it as you're thinking through this. Now I'm not just asking generically. If I were to ask you right now, can you name, give me a couple of names. Can you name some people who would find you in the dark cave and they would help you find strength in God? Not just that they would be there, but they would, they would be pointing you to Jesus. Could you give me that name? If you can't, you have some homework you can do on applying the word. But that's going to lead to the second question. Because the second question is, am I a friend like this? Am I a Jonathan? Because you can sit in a cave. You might be sitting in a cave and saying, oh, I wish I had a Jonathan. But see, here's the truth. The, the way life works, to, to get a Jonathan, you have to be a Jonathan. To get a friend like that, you have to be a friend like that. Usually, if I don't have friends like Jonathan, this is going to be one of these quotes that will probably get me in trouble. But if I don't have friends like that, usually it's because I'm not being one like that. That's simply the way it is. This is the biblical principle of we reap what we sow. And if you notice people who are like Jonathan and they are faithful and they are there in dark moments, guess what happens when they hit a dark moment? People are there for them. That's what happens. But if we're the kind of person who abandons, if we're the kind of person who's never taken the time, we've not given the soil to develop those kind of relationships, what we usually find is when we really, really need them, they're oftentimes not there. Not even because other people are being mean or, or anything else. We just simply haven't invested in them ourselves. So it's critical for us to see this. But, and, I, and I bring this point up, and I belabored a little bit, because I want to remind you, there is a lot in this culture, there is a lot in you and me that, that is stacked against us becoming like Jonathan. Okay, and even more like being like Christ. There is a lot in this culture. Our sin wants us to use other people, not sacrifice for them. Ever since the garden, it's been going on from bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's her fault, Lord. <laughs> Don't look at me. Okay, that is the way we are. And then we move from this is my brother in chapter four to I'm gonna kill him. I'm, my face is downcast. And that's what your sin and mine does. Our sin wants us to use one another. It does not rise up and say, sacrifice yourself for the good of that person. Never. And our culture is that on steroids right now. Our culture is all about not doing that. On top of the sin, we've got past hurts. If I were to ask in here, and I won't because everybody would raise their hand, how many of you have ever been hurt by somebody you thought was a friend? Well, let me tell you, when, when you get your hand burned, what do you do? I don't want to put my hand back. I, I open myself up. Friendship is vulnerability. 
When I open myself up and then I feel that stab and I turn around and there's the person I thought was my friend and they got a bloody dagger in their hand, let me tell you, it makes me afraid to go back to the well again. It makes me afraid to go back and do that again. And so I've not only got my sin, which does not want this, and the enemy who does not want this, I've got my own past hurts and difficulties that make it hard for me to want to do this. And then, as I said, our culture discourages all this on top of it. If I've somehow overcome my sin and I'm willing to jump back in the arena after my hurts, our culture has set itself up where the the time required to build these types of friendship, both on a weekly basis and over long periods of time, just simply isn't there. I, I want to be your friend this week, but Lord knows I'm running 900 miles an hour. You can't cultivate friendships in that culture. And I want to be your friend, but I'm never around any group of people long enough to develop lo- long-term friendships. And if you don't believe this, just start talking to me. When I tell other guys I've been a pastor of this congregation for 22 years, the strange looks I get... When I tell them I have friends sitting in this room right now that I have known since 1980, the look I get is, I don't even have a way to calculate that. I have no context for friendships that can be measured in decades. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Now, there are some of us that God calls and we're going to be, we have to, but that is not to be the standard, typical thing. And so not only is there my sin and my past hurts, our culture has just made it that even if I've overcome those things and I'm wanting to do it, it's making it virtually impossible to do. Because on a weekly basis, I can't find time to do it. And then even if I started doing it a little bit, I'm going to be up and gone. Largely because usually there's a hurt, and it may not even be that I've moved. I just, things went bad. It wasn't a good time in the church, so I picked up and I moved on. Well, Bay Ridge has had bad times. Bay Ridge will have bad times in the future. Take it to the bank. That's not a question. The question is, will we find one another in the cave? So all of those things are real. So with that being said, am I willing to be a Jonathan? Am I willing to sacrifice for other people? Because friendship is not convenient. I wish my friends only called me between 9 and 5 when I actually had spare time and nothing else was going on in my life. That's not usually when I discover a friend is stuck in a cave. It's usually at that moment where I'm like, of all the times, is this when you had to run into the cave? That's the way friendship is. Am I willing to make that sacrifice? Am I willing to stay with a friendship across the years through good and bad? Or do I run or cut people off when times get tough? Because every friendship's got those times. Which way am I? Last question on this. If you're sitting there and you're saying, wow, I don't think I'm a Jonathan. Here's some more homework. Who am I going to start being a Jonathan to? Who's it going to be? Who's God bringing into my life, into my sphere, that I can have this kind of relationship with? And You won't just wake up one day and find out it happened. It's it's a purposeful seeking after others. And you may try a couple of people, and they're not your David. That's okay. There is a David out there. Am I going to seek after that person? So with that, we're going to go ahead and stand up. We're going to pray.
for faithful friendships. And I want to encourage you as we're praying along to be thinking about these questions. Because again, this, this may seem like kind of a heavy thing, but it's really, really not. One of the things that we celebrate when we've had moms who are good is that they're with us through thick and thin. I know my mom has watched me say and do many stupid things in my life. And yet, she's my mom. She loves me. She cares for me. We need friends just like that. And it's not recognizing that there will be cave moments. Don't get down about it. They're going to come. It's what we want to do is we want to prepare now. If you know winter's coming, plant the seed now <laughs> so you can get the harvest to have food for it. So let's pray for God to encourage us to do that. Lord, I come to you, and first off, Father, because the gospel is always central, I am so grateful that even though Jonathan was good in many of these ways, I know he was fallen, but the one true friend to we sinners has been Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that in that moment he did not flinch from paying the price, that he did not do his own will, he did not seek an easy path, but rather he said, not my will, but thine be done. And in that moment, in that friendship to we sinners, he has secured salvation for all of his people. And Father, we are so grateful for that. And so Father, as those who are part of your church and who are supposed to be being conformed to the image of Christ, we ask right now that your Holy Spirit would be working that in us. In a culture that is losing the concept of how to be a friend, in a culture that is losing a concept of what it means to have covenant relationships, where we, where we are in a binding relationship, in a culture that hears that as being slavery rather than freedom, in a culture that thinks those kinds of things would hamper a relationship rather than it being the very soil which will allow the relationship to grow. Father, would you by your Holy Spirit transform and change us? Lord, we ask in a culture of increasing isolation and in a culture that's sad to say too often even the church participates in where we come in, we get our religious fix for the week, and we go on, and there's no context of community. Father, we don't want to be that. So Lord, we ask that you would build that kind of character into us. And Father, we pray that in our friendships, they would always be useful, no matter what sacrifice it requires for us, that we would be pointing one another back to Christ, back to the gospel back to your goodness and your covenant faithfulness, loyalty, and fidelity. Father, may we be those kind of friends to one another. And as you build this in us, Father, we ask that it would be useful to encourage us to walk with you. And as we walk with you, that it would help spread your kingdom here in this region and even out from there to the farthest corners of the earth. Lord, we ask that you would do all of this through Jesus, the friend and Savior of sinners. Amen. Amen. I'm going to conclude us with the word of benediction from 1 Thessalonians 3. I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other 
and for everyone else. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Go in the peace of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.